Well, good afternoon. Hope everybody is well fed, but not so well fed that you fall asleep. I think we'll be a little more relaxed. I'm always, you know, pressing for time in the morning service trying to get things covered. And, and I certainly want us to have time for, uh, for discussion. So if there's a um, mic, Greg, that we can use for discussion. Also, if anyone has not sent their emails yet in support of workplace religious freedom, maybe you can um, kind of shepherd them back there during the afternoon meeting and go on, send your emails. You won't miss much. Um, and uh, we can uh, get something accomplished while we're talking together this afternoon. Um, I want to pick up and tie up some things that we introduced this morning and make sure that they get nailed down in our thinking. Um, will the real Christian America please stand up? So what do we mean by the real Christian America? Well, to me, it, you can kind of symbolize the battle as a battle between Luther and Calvin. Between Luther and Calvin. In the early days of the Reformation, Luther uh, was very reluctant to have the political support of the princes fighting the battles of the Reformation. He was inclined and, and expressed it to put his faith in God alone and not in government. Calvin, of course, established in Geneva in Switzerland a community that was very much built upon the premise that God's kingdom is of this world and that they would establish God's kingdom in a civil domain and enforce the laws of God and create, uh, if you will, a Christian republic. The Puritans who and the pilgrims who came to America did not, as we often carelessly teach our kids in school, did not come here for religious freedom, uh, at least not for anybody's freedom other than their own. They were happy to have some uh, geographical space and place to worship uh, themselves, but they certainly weren't willing to extend any freedom to anybody else. But this was consistent with their Calvinist theology. And uh, I, I kind of teased this morning that we would talk about the theology that is most likely to lend itself to the mark of the beast. And it's Calvinism. Um, there's an acronym uh, for the basic teachings of Calvinism, TULIP. I'm not sure if I remember what all of the letters stand for, but there's a couple of, of key points to understand as it relates to our discussion. Um, Calvinism teaches that Jesus did not die for everyone. The, it, that's where the L comes in, limited atonement. Uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to die for the elect. So in Calvinism, you, sir, you're the elect, but you're going to burn. Oh, you're the elect, you're the elect. Over here, this side's going to burn. You were born for the fire. So, what value do you have if you were born? God has predetermined doctrine of, of predestination. God has predetermined that you folks are going to burn forever and ever. And there's no hope. And you have nothing to say about it. There's no choice. It's all God's sovereign will. Now, there's no freedom there, is there? There's no liberty of conscience. There's no personal decision-making as to whether you're going to accept Christ or not, or have faith or not. If you have faith, it's because God has chosen you and has given you faith. And you don't have any say in the matter whatsoever. Luther, on the other hand, said, and I quote, that freedom is the very essence of faith. So we are decidedly Lutheran in 
our basic understanding of religious freedom. That basic concept of justification by faith, that we have some role, some act of the will in responding to the love of Christ. Now, can you see how Calvinism, if you believe that you are the elect, that you're the chosen, and you know the will of God, and those who don't agree with you, who don't think like you, they're not the chosen. They're not the elect. In fact, their only role is to occupy until they are thrown into the fiery flames. Then the elect uh, arrogantly assume that they have the right not only to speak for God and to determine God's will, but to carry God's will out and to uh, bring in his kingdom as an earthly dominion. And that right there, I suggest to you, is a perfect theological foundation for the mark of peace. Does that make sense? Now, couple that with this bizarre eschatology that is all over the bestseller lists, you know, with the Left Behind series and countless uh, other books, all teaching that the Antichrist, along with the Mark of the Beast, only comes after what? The Rapture. So then, as long as there hasn't been a rapture, there can't possibly be a mark of the beast. Well, we know there's not going to be rapture. The only taking up is going to happen when Jesus comes. So, the entire Christian world is going to be, is being set up like a bowling pin. Speaking of bowling, Pastor Greg, being set up like a bowling pin, that they're being taught, number one, that it's a Christian obligation to elect godly rulers who will follow the will of God and implement the will of God and establish the nation. Uh, America was a chosen nation. We are the new Israel. We are Christian. So we are to bring in the kingdom of God and to enforce the law of God. And all the while uh, that Christians are pursuing this, they will unwittingly be bringing in the mark of the beast and won't even know it. And will be, to a great extent, men will be deceived. They will be sincere. Now, even among the leaders who are doing this, even Pastor Greg and I were discussing that there's, there's, there is, to be sure, a high degree of intellectual dishonesty in promoting the idea that America is a Christian nation. And in um, revising the history, um, those who are educated many of them have to know that what they're doing intellectually is fraudulent and that they're, what they're teaching people is fraudulent. But the problem is, like too many in the Adventist church, they're culturally isolated and so they're never challenged. They only hear from people who share the same views and agree with them. And so they constantly reinforce themselves with these false ideas. And it's, it's ludicrous sometimes, you know, to, to, to hear some of these things coming from people who have to know better. But of course, one of the reasons for all of this is to obtain political power and funding for the various organizations that are essentially independent ministries and trying to get people to give money to keep the whole thing going. So there's you know, certain motivations behind it. So where do we fit in? What do Seventh-day Adventists have to do at such a time as this? 
I have a um, I have a premise that Seventh Day Adventists believe that we believe the three angels' messages, but we don't really know what they are. <coughs> we know some of it, but again, because we talk to each other in shorthand, well, of course, you know what the third angel's message is, yeah. And you? Yeah, of course. We never really give it a whole lot of thought. So what I want to do this afternoon is I want to challenge you with uh, a different way to look at these messages, and I want to take a look at them and make sure we understand them. Uh... Let's try something here. We're a smaller group. 25 words, more or less. First angel's message. Your neighbor, been your neighbor for 10 years. Talk to them a thousand times about anything or nothing. Casually, across the fence, or maybe, you know, get in the morning paper, uh, you wave to them and they say, hey, you're an Adventist, aren't you? I, I heard you Adventists, uh, something about these three angels. What's, what's that all about? Okay? They don't know anything about religion. Okay, any takers? First angel's message. Anybody want, you know, explain the first angel's message to your neighbor in plain, simple English. For somebody that you, you have no assumptions that they have any clue what the Bible is all about. Now, I bet many of you can recite it with me, right? And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven having the everlasting gospel to preach to every nation, kindred, kind of people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God, give glory to Him. For the hour of his judgment is come. And worship him that made the heavens and earth, the sea, and the springs and waters. It's one thing to be able to recite it, but now, how would you explain it? Simply, your co worker, you know, whose guest is across the way from yours, or your neighbor across the, the backyard fence. Anybody want to take a stab at it? The gospel will be preached to every nation on earth. Okay. Now, mind you, the gospel is already a word that your neighbor doesn't necessarily understand what that means, but that's certainly a good start. Anybody else? I'd, I'd say to me it means that God calls us to heed Him first, to acknowledge Him first before we simply rely on our own self sense of self okay God calls on us to heed him first before we rely on ourselves what does it mean the hour of his judgment has come is that an important part of the message the judgment hour that we will all be judged. We're coming. We will be coming before Christ in the last judgment. Each one of us will be like an open book. And when it's, so we say fear God, it's not to fear Him, to be afraid of Him. Fear God is to obey Him and trust in Him and believe in the things that He says. I, I think the word fear. That's, trans, that's translated fear there carries a sense of respect and reverence more than it does being afraid. I guess to me, the essence of the first angel's message is, yeah, it's judgment day. And so it's time, and, and we're all going to be judged according to our relationship with Christ. It's time for us to really get locked in to a close relationship with Christ and learn what it means 
to live by faith and to be justified by faith. Um, putting it simply, I mean, there's certainly a lot more to it than that. Um, I would also suggest that we can look at the first angel's message as pointing us to the source of freedom. Where is freedom to be found? In Christ. If the Son shall set us free, then we're free indeed. Um, which reminds me, I meant to say earlier in this comparison of Luther and Calvin, we have all read in the Desire of Ages where Ellen White talks about how love must be free and how you know there's no force in the gospel in the plan of salvation because a loving God wants the response of a loving heart. We think that everybody else understands this, but they don't. This seems so basic to us, doesn't it? That love must be free. But it is not well understood. It is not well understood. And Calvinism, according to Christianity today, is enjoying a resurgence in America. And it is the fastest growing widespread theology in America. And there's no concept of freedom in Calvinism. So the idea that we understand that a loving God does not force us to believe or to worship is absolutely revolutionary. And it's critical. I would suggest, in fact, that it's the antidote to the mark of the beast. Think about it this way. Will someone vote for will someone support legislation to compel you to attend church and to worship and to punish you for failing to adopt these beliefs and these practices of, of worshiping on Sunday? If they understood that God doesn't force anybody to go to church or to worship him? That God doesn't force the conscience at all, but wants only the response that comes from a loving heart. If we truly understand that the Spirit works gently on our hearts, but the anti-Spirit is the one that, that twists our arms, then we will, even if we are confused about the day of worship or anything else about religion, we will see that compelling people through legislation to do what's not in their hearts to do is contrary to the work of the Spirit of God. Does that make sense? Really, that's what the whole battle is all about. And, And honestly, in religious liberty ministry, this is what we get to witness to um, when we go before Congress, or as I sometimes do, um, have the privilege of going before uh, legal conventions and talking to my fellow attorneys about uh, you know, religion and workplace issues and all. Get to, get to talk about these kinds of concepts, which uh, for them is revolutionary coming from a Christian. Because what they expect of Christians is, well, of course they want everybody to believe exactly the way they do, and they want everybody to do what they say, you know, that, to live up to the standards that, that they declare, even though they're not willing to live up to them themselves. Uh, which is, of course, when you word for that, people, you know, we despise hypocrisy good reason. Alright, first angel's message. Second angel's message. That one, that great city, Babylon, is fallen, is fallen, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Anybody care to tackle that for your neighbor in 25 words or less or more? Know what the second angel's message is? See, we start off easy because we do better with the first. And the third, of course, is, is an 
too bad because it's the warning against receiving the mark of the beast. And we all have some idea, I think, of what the mark of the beast is. But what's the warning about the fall of Babylon? Who's Babylon? False church, the mother church in Revelation 17 is a woman clothed in scarlet, all decked out in jewels. She's riding on a beast, holding the reins. So whose beast represents what? Beasts and prophecy always represent nations, right? So the woman is riding on the beast. Who's on top? Who's calling the shots? The beast or the woman? The, the, the imagery is pretty clear. She's on top. She's holding the reins. She's uh, directing traffic, if you will. Um, and on her name, on, on her forehead is her name, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots. So why is she the mother of harlots? Why is she, and, and, and the passage says that she commits fornication with whom? You want to look it up? Revelation 17. Don't guess. Look it up. Come here, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. With whom? Who committed acts of immorality? Kings of the earth. Kings of the earth. So she's a harlot because of her relationship with the powers of state. Right? It's a intimacy between church and state that's immoral. It's ungodly. And if you think about this, this imagery of, of, uh, of sexual immorality is very profound because the church is supposed to be the bride of whom? So if the church is committing sexual immorality, fornication with the powers of state, uh, she's unfaithful to her husband, to Christ, and substituting for the power of Christ, she's becoming intimate and seeking the power of the state. You see? Does that make sense? Does uh, anybody not see that that's what's been happening in this country, at least for the past 30 years? That with the whole rise of the religious right, that the church is seeking the power of the state. Some Baptists produced that, uh, what's it called? Ethics Daily produced a documentary um, called Golden Rule Politics. And uh, they're countering the notion that the, uh, that the GOP, which is representative of the Republican Party, uh, is, stands for God's own party. That golden rule politics can't be confined to a single political party. The pursuit of political power by the churches is very evident today. We see this happening before our eyes. Okay, Babylon is a religious power. Uh, I would suggest that we take an expansive view. Historically, we tend to be a little narrow in our Adventist interpretation, perhaps. We say, oh, it's the mother church, but if she's the mother of harlots, then we know that mother and daughters will be following the same path together. Um, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, because she does what? She makes all nations do something, drink of the wine of the wrath of morality. 
So her fall that's focused on in the second angel's message is not her moral fall or her spiritual fall, it's the result of that moral or spiritual fall, which is that she now is seeking to impose her will on the nations of the world. She makes all nations drink. You see that the emphasis is on not her falling away from Christ, but her falling into the arms of the state. Does that make sense? She makes all nations drink the wine. What is wine a symbol of? A symbol of the gospel. Jesus said that you shouldn't put new wine in old wineskins. And he was referring to the gospel. Wine, broadly understood, is a symbol of, of doctrine, church teaching. She makes the nations drink her wine. So she's applying her teachings to politics. Now there's a, uh, let me stop right here and say there's a right and a wrong approach to how religion and politics intersect. And historically, there's a very easy way to kind of separate um, to, you know, kind of a bright line distinction that we can draw. And we draw that bright line distinction between the first and second tables of the Ten Commandments law. The first table of the Ten Commandments, and by the way, Roger Williams, who himself was actually Calvinist in his theology, founder of Rhode Island after being kicked out of Massachusetts Bay for his heretical notions of, in part, religious freedom, but also because he actually insisted on treating the Native Americans with respect, and he was the only one of his generation who had any success in bringing Christianity to them, probably because he treated them uh, in a Christian manner. Um, Williams made this distinction between the first table of the law, which respects our human obligation to reverence and to worship God, to obey God. Over that table of the law, the state has no authority, no jurisdiction whatsoever. The second table represents our human obligations to one another, um, to the family, to marriage, to honor father and mother, to uh, integrity in our business dealings, not to commit perjury, not to steal, uh, you know, not to covet what belongs to our neighbors. It's not to say that the state can enact laws to enforce every aspect of the second table of the law. It's simply that the legitimate sphere of government goes to our human relationships. And if you look at Romans chapter 13, where Paul describes respect for government authority, the, the parts of the law that he recounts there are all taken from the second table of the law, not the first. And by the way, when Paul wrote Romans 13 and taught respect for governing authority, do you know who was sitting on the, the Roman throne? Ever hear of a guy by the name of uh, Nero? <laughs> What kind of a ruler was he? He was insane. He was really insane. So, respect for government authority is not really dependent on the quality or the form of government. It is an enduring principle. Uh, now, there are certainly times that it becomes imperative to also uh, resist government authority when um, uh, you know when it oppresses religious freedom, for example. There have been many examples throughout history when Christians have played a role in resisting, um, in disobeying, smuggling Bibles into the former Soviet Union. You know, being martyrs and being persecuted throughout the ages. 
But this bright line distinction then, so let's take a look, uh, let's, let's make an application here. Marriage. The California Supreme Court heard oral arguments Tuesday, this past week. The California voters, a couple years ago, passed Proposition 22, and amended the California Constitution to declare that marriage is, drum roll please, shockingly, a man and a woman. <laughs> this is a stunning proposition. And Tuesday, the court was asked to declare that this is somehow wrong, illegal, to deprive other couples who don't fit the description of a man and a woman, to deprive them of the title of marriage, since uh, at least some of them, as in same-sex couples, already have, under state law, all of the rights and privileges of marriage, because that's already been passed under the scheme of domestic partnerships. Well, ironically, both those who promote gay marriage and those who promote traditional marriage agree on one thing, that the state has the legitimate authority to decide. Nobody has said that the state really has no authority over marriage. Marriage is a matter of you know, human relations. Now, I would argue, although it would be fruitless in today's political climate to, to make this argument, but I would argue that marriage is first and foremost um, an institution created and established by God. And the state has no legitimate authority to change what God has created. But that argument won't fly very well in today's culture. Alright. <coughs> Do you get this basic distinction, this idea that whether we worship God, whether we believe in God, one God, a thousand gods, a Hindu God, a Buddhist God, a Jewish God, a Christian God, uh, whether we worship on Tuesday or Saturday or Sunday or no day, this is not the business of the state. But other things, whether we legalize abortion or outlaw abortion. Whether we legalize homosexual relationships or outlaw them, these the state um, has authority to address. You lost me there. I'm not I'm, right now. We're not getting into what the policy should be with respect to issues like abortion or homosexuality. What we're saying is, these are areas that the government has legitimate jurisdiction over. Um, so when it comes to the church wanting to apply its biblical wisdom, its doctrines, and influence public policy, what I'm saying is, there are areas that pertain to human relationships where it is right and proper for our biblical wisdom to play a role in shaping public policy. But when it comes to religion, we should not ask the state to promote or enforce or encourage our belief or similarly to restrict or discourage someone else's belief and practice. The state should just stay out of the business of religion, stay neutral towards religion, and just protect everybody's <coughs> rights of conscience and religious freedom. And that's where the distinction between the first and the second table of, of the law come in. So when Babylon makes all nations drink the wine of the wrath of her fornication, 
It's not because she's advocating about abortion that she's crossing the line. It's because she's insisting on things like uh, having her version of the Ten Commandments put up and having her Christian prayers um, recited in public schools and promoting having the state promote religion. This is where she crosses the line. Um, and there have been numerous instances of that. Um, am I making sense now? You get what I'm saying? So, Babylon, let's, let's make sure we've got all these symbols lined up. Babylon, uh, it falls because she makes all nations drink the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The fornication, we've already said, is the immoral relationship between church and state. The wine are the doctrines that are enforced. The wrath. The last symbol we haven't talked about. The wrath is simply the enforcement of those doctrines and the power of the state to back them up, to enforce them, to punish those by force of law who disobey. Does that make sense? So, let's step back. What's the basic message? When the church forsakes the power of God, she seeks a substitute, the power of the state. And in so doing, she falls. And what happens when she falls? The mark of the beast, right? The third angel's message, the warning against receiving the mark of the beast. When she falls, liberty dies. Religion is legislated by law, and people are forced to do what's not in their hearts to do, in terms of the worship of God. Right? So America's at crossroads. There's really only two places we can go. Either we receive and respond to the first angel's message, which is a call to return to Christ as the source of moral and spiritual power, as the source of freedom, that we partake of the judgment hour ministry of Christ and receive his cleansing of our soul temples by faith. It's by faith, isn't it? It's the work that Christ does in us. It's not what we have to do for ourselves. It's not a works trick, is it? By faith, allowing we become intimate with Christ and we allow Christ to work in our lives. And that's the only way for us to have true moral and spiritual revival it is by going to Christ. Is that fair? Mm -hmm. The alternative, what happens if the first angel's message is not preached properly and people don't respond to it and experience revival? The mark of the beast, we lose our freedom. And the second angel's message, I believe, is present truth that we must warn against the church seeking to substitute and use the power of the state as a substitute for what they've already lost, which is the power of God, <coughs> and to attain moral and spiritual ends through political means. The real Christian America is the one that becomes intimate with Christ where Americans become the Christ. The counterfeit is where we claim to belong to Christ, but lacking the power of Christ, we trample on freedom. So the second angel's message is absolutely imperative and will determine the destiny of this country and with it the world. And uh, not to in any way embarrass all of you, but you're not um, significantly different in your depth or lack of depth of understanding than any other group of Adventists. We have become very shallow 
in our understanding of the very message that God has given to us. And what we need to do is make sure we, we understand it so that we can say very plainly to our neighbors that we need to obtain the power of God and, and not think of, of politics as a suitable substitute. That there's great danger in church seeking to unite with state and looking to the state to do what we have not done through the power of God. I'll give you an example. We have on the back table in the, in the foyer our written in the heart and commandments brochures. Has anybody ever seen very prominent Ten Commandments display um, at a big church on uh, you know main downtown intersection in anywhere? Now, all over the South in recent years, they've started, you know how you have the political um, cardboard signs? They've started doing Ten Commandments signs like that people put them on their lawns. You know, there's this, this huge outcry movement to get the Ten Commandments posted where? On government property, in schools, in, in, in public buildings, in courthouses. Why do we need the government to promote the Ten Commandments? Any town, USA, that you go to, there are churches on prominent intersections in downtown or wherever, unlike, obviously, we're here kind of on a, on a back street. Um, why don't we see Ten Commandments displays on our own private property where we have perfect freedom to do it? If it's so important that we publicly display the Ten Commandments, why are we not doing it? But we insist that government do it, Greg? I don't know that we do have the freedom to do that because it comes under the jurisdiction of the city oftentimes when it's perceived as signage. And uh, they'll come out and cite and remove and so forth. And the neighbors, uh, at least around here, are very picky about whatever might be put outside of a building, religious or otherwise. <laughs> That's a you know, I have, um, I have made this comment on talk radio shows all over the nation, and no one has ever given me as coherent an answer as your pastor. So kudos. But I, I have to say, I mean, what you said is true, but government, reg local land use regulation of signage uh, generally does not completely preclude putting up signs, but it does put certain restrictions on the size and the placement of those signs. So in most cities, you would be able to negotiate a suitable Ten Commandments sign and put it up. True. Um, you may not get it quite as big. You won't have, um, you know, you'll have to negotiate with the government as far as how you do it, but you still, we still do have some measure of freedom of speech left in this country. We haven't lost all of it yet. You can always write it on your garage door. <laughs> well, there's a case going up now where the church put, uh, spray, the pastor spray painted the word eternity on the roof of the church, and he's out in the desert somewhere, I think, east of San Diego, and uh, there's not too many people around where this church is, but uh, they, they were making him, uh, you know, remove the word eternity from the roof of, uh, of the church, and this case is, is going up on appeal now. So you see that, uh, you know, liberty really is being uh, squeezed in so many different ways. And eternal vigilance really is the price of freedom. So we've talked about the theology and eschatology that lead up to the mark of the beast. We've talked about our message and third angel we've got to get to. Well, the third angel is the warning against the market, receiving the market beast. Um, what is the market beast? Is it just Sunday? It's the opposite of the seal of God. Well, there's a good answer. <laughs> See, I like to do this in ethnic churches because 
anti-churches tend to be um, very performance-based. Sabbath is the right day, Sunday is the wrong day. If you go to church on Sunday, you're going to get the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast is when they tell those of us who go to church on the right day that we have to worship on their day. And they make us worship on their day or they're going to kill us. But what we tell them is, no, if you don't worship on our day, God's going to kill you. (laughs) Wait. There's something wrong there, isn't there? It's, it's, there's got to be It's not quite right, is it? Now, it's true that the seventh day, Sabbath is the day that God has set apart for worship, and, and Sunday is not the day that God has set apart for worship, and it's true that Sunday will be enforced, and our freedom to worship on Sabbath will be restricted, so all of that's true, but how do we understand this in terms of the character of God? What is? What are we saying about God? Are we saying, to me, what the mark of the beast says about God is, God's going to force you to do it his way or he's going to kill you. And what we say about God is, no, God gives you the freedom to respond in love or not, but with that freedom comes the responsibility of your choices. Right? And this brings us back to the first angel's message. When we say the hour of God's judgment has come, in the grammar of the Greek, Both ideas that I'm about to to say are present in the sentence structure. The hour of God's judgment means, as we've always understood, that God is judging us. Right? It's God's judgment of us. The judgment belongs to God. It's possessive in that sense. God's judgment. But it's also, I won't bore you with the, the grammatical terms, Subjective genitive, I think, is what it's called. Um, our judgment of God. That our eternal destiny is ultimately dependent upon our judgment of God. God's judgment of us and the judgment is really based on our response. How have we have we judged God as worthy of our love and our trust and our faith and our respect? And have we responded to his love? And if so, we're part of his family. If, on the other hand, we have rejected God's love and we have spurned the Spirit, spurned his overtures, and turned our backs, he respects our choice. He's a gentleman. My favorite religious liberty text is Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door knock. Christ, we're, 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 the kids are gone. Christ is not a rapist. He doesn't force his way into our lives. He doesn't force intimacy upon us. He's gentle. He's meek. He's mild. By the way, that verse is taken right out of the Song of Solomon. I think it's chapter 6. You can, you can go look up. All of the book of Revelation is taken, if not by direct quote, by idea, somewhere from the Old Testament. But it's taken from the passage where, you know, the lover is, is banging at the door, and uh, the one inside is, you know, too, too tired and too lazy to get up and open the door, and when she finally does, her lover's gone. And now she has to go out searching for him. That's where it's taken. You know, behold, I say that the door or not. So to me, the, the, yes, the mark of the beast, we see the legislation of Sunday versus the, the freedom to, to worship according to the dictates of conscience, but it's, it's more than Sabbath and Sunday. Because Sabbath has got to be a symbol 
all of true freedom, of true love. Doesn't it? That we worship the Creator who made us, who redeems us, who will yet come again and restore to us our, our lost humanity, our lost home in Eden. And that there's no element of force in it that is what the mark of the beast is all about, that God is the God of power, the God of force, and he's going to insist on his way, and you have to comply whether it's in your heart to do it or not. God will force you to do it. So that's where the contrast is. And that's why, to me, religious liberty and the gospel are inseparable. If we understand the gospel, we understand religious liberty, and vice versa. And it is what this church was raised up to do to prepare for the coming of Christ. Let me, um, I probably have some points that I didn't cover if I, if I went back and thought about it. If they're important, I'll probably get to them eventually. But let me go ahead and, um, Let's offer the mic here if there's comments or questions about not only anything we've talked about already today. I know, I know what I have to talk about is, is the whole issue of America becoming dragon and all of that. So we may go into some of that this afternoon, some of the chapter first. But I'd really like to give you folks an opportunity if there are any questions that you have, whether it's about the homeschool decision or about the marriage issue or any religious liberty issue, workplace religious freedom, anything that we haven't talked about today, um, I'd be delighted to take a few minutes. I find that focusing on the issues that you're interested in um, is often much more interesting and informative than my just... Uh, we covet the opportunity to interact with you. I'm going to put this microphone because we're recording this session in the middle of the aisle. If you'd be so kind as to come to the microphone and speak, it will enable your question to be recorded, and that way the answer will make sense later on when we uh, when we have that back. Thank well, you for any decent teacher. I will insist that the only 